You're joining us for episode 74 of the Rocky Talkie Podcast. I'm your host, Rocky Riccatoni. We are once again at the Aveling Brewery and Restaurant on Queen Street East. And I am joined today uh, in a closed-down dining area of a beautiful space with a very talented person uh, I have not been in the same room with for at least 11 years. Uh, Was a regular of mine at Dark Horse Espresso Bar on Queen Street West 100,000 years ago. And um, she's here by by the virtue of the fact that I just always thought that she was... So very, very cool and very, very kind. Kind eyes, kind smile, and um, very demonstrative. And then I discovered the body of work that she's responsible for. I'm joined today by Vanessa Hines. Did I say that right? You did. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Hi, Rocky Talky. Yeah. I I got to meet a lot of great people in Toronto. Um, Queen West was a hotbed of just every kind of personality, every type. And over the course of... Americanos and cappuccinos and I think did you get like a were you an almond milk person or a soy or yeah, yeah. one of the one of the alternative yeah. milks <laughs> you get a you get a feel for people and um and then you mentioned you were a photographer and I got into some of your work and was profoundly impressed by um who you have captured through your lens and um the people that you regularly do work with. Um, I don't want to name drop, but you've done a lot with Alexis on Fire and Dallas Green and uh, Carly Rae Jepsen. You've got some Rolling Stone creds on there, and uh, that's just a little bit of the resume. But um, this is two years in the making of getting you um, on, on a calendar to do this. So thank you. I mean, thanks for asking me. Uh, thanks for being so patient. Of course. Some people are worth waiting on, man. Absolutely. Um, this new trend in my life as a host uh, is I'm starting to kind of fall away from the rigid structure of conversation. And just when there's someone I feel drawn to talk to, I don't really care anymore about the table of contents. I just kind of want to chat. So that's what we're going to do if that's okay with you. Um, but I'm also a really big origins guy. So I've seen your body of work and I've, I've gotten to know you a little bit, but I always want to know, how did you arrive to the person I'm sitting in front of right now? Um, can we start with where you grew up and how you grew up? Like, what did, what did the house look like? Was it a family that was full of, you know, arts? Was it a warm family? Was it a family that had people in the home all the time? What, what was it like? Hmm. Well, I grew up in Vancouver with my mom and dad. You're a West um, Coaster. I am. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I've lived in Toronto longer than I lived in Vancouver, okay. so I sort of feel Ontario in my blood. Okay. Um, actually, both my parents are from Ontario. My mom is from uh, Manitic, which is just outside of Ottawa, and okay. my dad was born in Toronto, actually. So, yeah, I, I have some Ontario roots, okay. I guess. But, yeah, I grew up in Vancouver. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I grew up with my mom and dad. Uh, you know, my parents were together until I was about eight years old and then they split up Mm. and uh, my dad moved back to Ontario so I um, split my time as a kid between uh, both homes so I would stay with my dad every summer in Ontario and then uh, at Coburg to be exact Ah, where Coburg is. I do. I have have friends that live there. Oh nice. Actually well Grafton to be more specific but um, yeah my dad lived in Grafton and then uh, moved to Ottawa later in his life, but uh, 
Yeah, so I kind of split my time between the two. So, you know, the question of the happy household or what the household was like, I mean, yes, I'm sure my parents very much liked each other at one point point. in time, but I don't know if that is something I remember exactly. Mm. But anyways, that is sort of a tale that a lot of people can relate to for sure. Having two kids, I, I often say to my wife, I'm like, man, divorce is such a common thing and uh the the countless amounts of parents that have traversed that rough patch of land and i i'm I'm like i would probably cry every night without my family yeah i can't imagine how many parents have gotten used to like not being there when the kids go i'm starting to tear up right now i'm like i can't i can't i can't i can't get there um yeah you mentioned summers in in in, uh, ontario with your dad there's something about summer and being young and going your own way and traveling by yourself and like stepping out into a three month timeline where it's like, this is just me in a new place. What was that like for you? For, for me, I, maybe I'm romanticizing it a bit, but I would go see my dad a lot when I, in my teens in Ottawa and I had cousins there and it was just like a golden summer. It felt lovely. It was like, this is my time to be me with people my age away from normal life. Was it, was it nice for you? Um, I think when I was younger, so when my dad was living in Grafton, he lived with his brother and his dad and mom. There was kind of like a big house, a big property that mm-hmm. they all kind of shared. And my aunt and uncle had a son, Andrew, who was um, just a month uh, older than I was. So we were very close in cool. age. And Grafton is very rural. Like, you know, they basically lived in mm-hmm. the country. And coming from Vancouver, I think that was kind of like a bit of a culture shock for me. So, I mean, when I was younger, it was really lovely because it was just sort of about being a kid and getting on bikes and exploring and, you know, doing all the fun stuff, baseball camps and swimming and all that kind of stuff. Um, What year would this have been? Oh, gosh. I mean, I don't know. I was nine or ten. I was born in 84. I don't know. Early 90s, I guess. And... um, Yeah, and then my dad moved to Ottawa, and, you know, the older I got and the more I was a teenager, I think I felt a little bit, not resentful is not the right word, but of course, like, I was missing summers at home with my friends, and I was Mm. kind of in the prime of feeling a bit of independence and all those things, so I think I felt, you know, the awful teenage word of, like, bored a lot and wanting to, like, be around my friends. Gotcha do the teenage things, but I was kind of just spending the summer with my dad and, you know, I mean, that's so awful in retrospect. And we had a lot of fun and my dad tried to do so many beautiful things for me. Like he would take me to edge fest and like every concert I wanted to go to, he was like, you know, leading the way. And of course we had so much fun, but you know, the older I got, I was like, I wish I was in Vancouver with my friends. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, typical teenager stuff. I think it might have been more romantic for me because I didn't really know my dad well. So when I when I would be on his turf, it was more of a more of an adventure and more of a discovery. I was like, oh, I'm, this is new. I'm learning. I'm learning about him and this side of the family that I don't really know. So I think that maybe that's probably a different purview. So, but I get that. What what year? How old were you when you ended up in Toronto? Like for good. Uh, well, I moved here in 2002, okay. uh, right after I graduated high school, and I went to. Um, like formerly Ryerson University. It's been since renamed, but it was that at the time. And I was there from 2002 to 2006. Um, And I would say I 
sort of permanently moved here in 2006, but every summer I would go home and okay. spend with my family in between semesters. So you went to school for photography? I did, okay. yeah. And so that is what you do professionally. This is who you are. You are a photographer. I am, yeah. Okay, so what was the... Uh, you know, I'm always fascinated about the, the, the spark, the beginning of something. I say this almost every other uh, interview, but, you know, I remember those first songs, those defining moments from like, oh my God, I'm, now that I've heard that or seen that, I'm forever changed, different. What were the moments... Uh, that made you go, I think photography is what I'm going to do. Because you strike me as someone who's incredibly artistic. I, I know you're moved by music, like you're a music person. Um, but what was it about sp photography specifically that goes, that's going to be my job. That's my life. Um, I'm not sure I could totally articulate that, but it was definitely an instant feeling of, you know, I took it in high school. It was sort of one of the electives that you could choose from, and mm -hmm. I kind of at the time felt like it was a bit of the lesser evil, like between woodworking and sewing, <laughs> yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, I'll give photography a shot. Um, and I had a really incredible, brilliant, passionate teacher. Mm -hmm. I had one of those teachers that's kind of out of the movies. That Mr. Just, Holland's opus, kind of. Totally, yeah. Mr. Collins actually nice. is his name. Nice. Um, is his name and. Um, yeah, he was just so incredibly supportive of all his students. And I think just honestly, from the first role of film I developed, I was like... That's it? Instantly hooked. And we had sort of a dark room in our school. We could develop and print all our own pictures. Dark and, room. Yeah, and all my friends were kind of my like muses, so to speak. So honestly, I felt like it was such an instant connection. Like I can't really speak of like the first photo, but I think I just knew like the second I did it that I was kind of completely obsessed and that that was my trajectory. And, you know, I, I've seen, I saw my teacher very recently actually when I went home to visit and um, yeah, he was always one of those people that was just like with you, you just knew that that was like the thing that you were going to pursue. And mm -hmm. it was really true. I can remember that feeling of being like, this is it. We're, we're so lucky that we had those moments. There's a lot of people that haven't had those aha uh, passion downloads. Like, oh my God, this, I must do this or I'll die. Totally. Uh, I'm so grateful that I, that I was lucky to be that guy. Same. I, I, yeah. Um, were you someone growing up that had an, an innate ability to observe or did that come after like what came first your ability to see people and to see a moment or did did you learn how to get good at that because of the first love affair with the culture of film um i mean i think when i was growing up i was pretty shy i remember my dad really talking about feeling like i was a really shy kid and that i really had a hard time using my voice and mm. i was always kind of at the back of the room and I remember him always saying too, like he was always so worried about how sensitive I was. Mm. Like everything would make me cry. I was like a really sort of like empath little kid. I'm sure. So my daughter Layla. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure also too, like growing up in the house I did probably had um, something to do with it because there was a lot of a lot of emotions and things going mm. on that you kind of had to like sit back and observe and all that kind of stuff. So I'm. I feel like some of my um, me gravitating towards that tool was probably a way to be in spaces without having to use my voice, you know, Oof, having sort good. of a, another thing that I could do without having to, I could be present with that, but not sort of have to 
speak and kind of hide in the back of the room, but still be part of something. So I'm sure it kind of came a lot from that. That's awesome. That's awesome. I want to kind of jump right to, to the the present. I don't have my mic. I want to, cause there's some, I'm trying to say here. I'm impressed by the, the polarity of who I'm talking to versus the world that you are in and what you capture. Um, you're very still and uh, there's a calming uh, smallness to you, to you. And I mean that in the best way. Like you're, you, you're, you're, how do I say this? Well, it's like exactly what you talked about. I, I feel like you, you would be content to kind of just observe and be a little bit further back in the room. But what's amazing is, is that you're dead front and center with some very large and loud personalities. And so you've managed to insert yourself into this very um, frenetic, bright space, yet there's this stillness about you. Does, does that ever seem strange to you, that, that who you are is doing what you do? Um, I don't know. I've never thought about it like that. But no, not really, because I feel like what I do requires a lot of that, because I feel like... Um, for me, uh, I'm trying my best not to take up a lot of space in these scenarios, kind of be like the fly on right. the wall or the silent observer. I feel like um, to be invited into those types of spaces um, and to have the energy required takes that kind of calmness. I mean, I always laugh when people call me calm and quiet because I feel like pure chaos on the inside. But people always do describe me as calm and I feel like my brain doesn't feel calm, but... Yeah, I think it does require that level of just like observance, quiet, still nature to let everyone else do what's happening and just to capture that, you know? You're you're kind of a servant in a way where you're, um, you serve the moment and you're out of the way, yet you're producing something very important. It's, it's, It's an interesting position. It's kind of like being a cook, like you're in the back, you're silently suffering away and doing your thing, but... What's, what's outgoing is, uh, is really all that matters. Uh, maybe that's, maybe I'm stretching there, but I see like Alexis on fire, <clears throat> excuse me. And I see you capture those moments and I'm like, she was in that really loud chaotic room. <laughs> I just pictured the person ordering an almond latte and I'm like, how did she do that? That's a, that's wild. Um, uh, what's the story look like that got you in front of these people like what what is the i i say this a lot anytime an artist can make five dollars doing art and then make a living doing art i have the same respect for them as an astronaut or a person who becomes a doctor to me that is a an incredible feat um you have been gainfully employed being an artist what was the journey like from graduating uh college to who you are right now. To me, that's amazing. Like take us, take us through those steps. Um, yeah. I mean, when I graduated from school, I always had a part-time job. I worked, uh, actually similarly to you at a fine establishment, but not as cool called Starbucks. Nice. Hey man, back in the day, it was very cool. Back in the day. Um, I worked there for a very long time, actually from when I was in high school, all throughout university. Cool. They would sort of transfer me back and forth between Vancouver and Toronto, which was very nice. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, so I worked that job until one day I realized that I was being like a monster to every single person that would come in and they had like done absolutely nothing to deserve it. <laughs> I'd pay I'm a lot sure of money you... to see what Vanessa Hines looks like being a monster to somebody. Just like extra hot elbow. No right. Decaf, decaf, decaf. decaf. Um, yeah, so I realized that it was time to let that Move go. And uh, I started actually working in the wedding photography world, okay. um, assisting or second shooting for someone at the time. And, you know, that space was an actually an amazing space to work in because I feel like you have to be the jack of all trades yeah. when you're a wedding photographer. You have to be like a portrait photographer, documentary, stills, like you have to do everything. So Good point. I learned an immense amount in that period of time. And that was sort of helping facilitate, like, still working in the fields, not having to make coffee, um, and then also just having a little bit of time for myself to sort of shoot the things I wanted to shoot. And, you know, when I was in school, I would say it was a more fine art-based program. You know, all my peers were making these really beautiful, um, like, series work on things. And I was just contacting bands in Toronto via a website called MySpace. I remember that. Yeah. Um, and just being like, can I take your photos? So when we would show up to critiques, people would have these really beautiful bodies of work and I would have pictures of like death from above and wow. controller, controller and cancer bats. And, you know, that's how I was meeting all these bands was through kind of like, I don't know, I knew that's what I wanted to shoot. Amazing. And so, yeah, sort of my passion for that grew there so when I graduated school I think I was kind of doing the same thing where I was sort of reaching out to people and just being like I'll show up where are you I'll come to your show let me take your photo the power of reaching out totally I still stick by that today and I still do that today Damn. all the time and it honestly you know, and you know what yeah. now I know why you you were so um accommodating to me because I think you know the pain of reaching out <laughs> I'm like why is she being so kind to me it's long suffering but like, yeah, well, yes, yes. Just say yes. But, but I mean like, uh, you're still doing it because of those early days of reaching out. Yeah. I mean, there's so much power in that. And I, I feel like, you know, what's the worst someone's going to say to you is yeah. no. And I feel like most of the time people are generally pretty yeah. willing to say yes, yes, especially in those heydays, you know, of like those bands were all up and coming. So I feel like they needed pictures. Mm -hmm. I was still learning how to do it. So that, when, when, yeah, that is how I, sort of connected with Alexis on Fires. I was like, I'll take the bus to St. Catharines. I'll come to L3 and I'll shoot you at your show. And, you know, from there, they sort of just remembered me yeah. and then the thing kept going. So that's like, you know, I feel like it's a long game yep. in a lot of ways. Yep. And so people are like, how do I get to do that? And I'm like, well, go back 15 years in time. Yeah. <laughs> Or you know what I mean? Like start small and build a relationship, you know, and keep it going. There it is, relationship. Um, yeah, I would say that 85%, it's an 85% success rate with people when I reach out to them. It's, yeah. it's actually mind-blowing how willing people are. Yeah, and I yeah. mean, it's flat. Any, anytime anyone reaches out to you, I'm sure it's the same thing if I say to someone like, you know, I'd really love to capture your portrait. I mean, it's flattering when mm -hmm. people are interested in what you do and want to connect with you, you know, so... Yeah, that's always a big piece of advice I say to people. Just reach out and ask, yep. and you'd be really surprised at the people that will invite you in. One hundred percent. People go, how, "How did you do that? How'd you get that person?" I'm like, I asked. Yeah. Yeah. What was it about uh, bands specifically? Like, this is this is what I kind of want to know about. Like, where where does music fit into um, the paradigm of who you are and what you do? Because I feel like 
that's a, there's a huge part there. Yeah. Um, I mean, growing up, my dad kind of worked in the music world. Um, in what way? Uh, like from the time he was a young person, he, uh, sold records. Okay. So I think when he was like a teenager, he worked for a company that sold records to Sears. So he would go to Sears and they would buy records. And then, um, when he moved to Vancouver, he worked at a place called A and B sound. I don't know. It's kind of like our equivalent of HMV. Okay. Sort of like a big music store. So, um, he moved out there to help open stores and then he sort of had a record shop of his own where he sold vinyl. It was called Final Vinyl. I like that. Yeah. And uh, that's something he did his whole life, you know, sort of professionally. And then in his later years, it was kind of just like, you know, he was a record collector. He had like 30,000 records or something insane like that. And they all lived in basements and storage rooms and they were in our houses and they were in record crates. He had whole rooms devoted to them Mm. that looked like record stores. So when I was a kid, I would sort of sit with him and help him organize them and go through you know, album That's covers cool. and things like that. So you come by this naturally and honestly. I, I think so. I think it's kind of just been like such a part of my being, you know, and my dad was in a band when he was a younger person and music was just always such a big part of our lives growing up. And like big credit to my mom too, because she was always listening to music too in our house. Like I remember like the tragically hip always playing or things like that. So I think I just was surrounded by so much love for music Um, and then when I was in university or sorry, high school, when I started, um, taking pictures, two of my like nearest and dearest friends who still are, um, they play in a band, which is called said the whale. Um, but at the time, you know, they went through many iterations, but I was sort of their photographer. So growing up in high school, when I was sort of learning, I would do all their pictures and, you know, I think it just kind of came naturally to me that I sort of evolved into the music world by learning through my friends, you know? That's so cool. That's so cool. Your dad was John Cusack from High Fidelity. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder what, yes, he was. I think he would kind of laugh at that in retrospect because he was always like, I don't know if he loved that character of the record store snob, mm-hmm. you know, he'd always kind of laugh about the, the curmudgeon that was too cool for anything. But yeah, a version of the John Cusack. What were some of the big albums for you in your formative years? Oh, gosh. It's an unfair um, question. It's a hard question, but I'm, I'm always curious what, what people say. Um, you know, I was a real, like, West Coast CanCon gal, so I was really big into, like, Age of Electric and oh, Limb Lifter. Come on, and, thank you. You know, Matthew Goodband and... Holly McNarland, yes. I'd watch Much West yes. and all that kind of stuff. Um, You're, uh, I'm getting goosebumps. That's so great. Okay. Uh, it's well, not a lot of people that that mention those bands. And oh, yeah. Holly McNarland is like a deep cut. Oh, totally. I loved it so much. I mean, it's funny. I photographed um, Ryan Dahl from Limlifter like many years ago at Strombo's house. And I had this moment where I never asked people for pictures and I got a picture with Ryan and I explained to him like I have this picture of me and you when I was like 16 and you're signing this CD for me and I would just love to like sort of recreate he's this a hero. photo yeah he's, he's a hero absolutely amazing yeah um I had so we we have a thing called uh, the times it's like a side project where I mean two other like creatives we do these live recordings in front of an audience um for a podcast and open bar and we have like a local artist have art on the wall 
invite only. You have a key. It's a speakeasy. You got to do like a password. We had, um, dirty, I think the Dirty Niller coming on nice. next month, but we had Mike Treblecock from the Killjoys on, and uh, that was a, a 90s fixture for me. Yeah. Um, but what I was saying to him was, at the time when I was coming up as a, as a musician and a music lover in the 90s, Canada, every province had bands that were representing and were very exciting. Yeah. Um, and the first Age of Electric album was profoundly huge for me. Yeah. And then when Limblifter came out, like, forget it. I, I still listen to them regu- regularly. And Kurt Dahl is one of my favorite drummers. And then he went on to, you know, new pornographers. But uh, I think, I think maybe we can meet up there. They're, um, Limlifter's doing a show at Horseshoe, I think in May. Yeah, I saw that. And I want to go. Yeah, I actually have not seen Limlifter before. Oh, no. I saw them quite a few years ago, like as an adult. And it was such a freeing experience because I went by myself and I saw this other guy actually in Toronto that I went to high school with in Vancouver. And we were just kind of like, you know, gave each other the nod. And then I just acted like I was like 16 years old all over again. And it's funny because I remember I had this friend in high school and uh, we kind of had like a bit of a falling out. There's like a group of girls. And I remember when we had the falling out, my one friend told me, oh, well, you know, she just, she thinks that all you ever do is talk about age of electric and limb lifter, which is so funny now that I think about it. Cause I'm like, still, I still, love like, that 20 something years later, you know, hasn't left me. I'm still true. Yeah, man. So going back to Ottawa with my time with my dad, uh, the first limb lifter album came out. Was that 97? Probably sometime around there. Uh, with Tinfoil. Um, Classic. So good. I hear that album and I'm in Ottawa in the 90s in the summer. Yeah. And uh, my dad, I remember my dad laughing at the band and like, Limlifter, what a name. And we're talking about bad brands, all these band names that like, my dad didn't get, but he thought it was so funny. But they, uh, I love the fact that I have Canadian bands that are just as integral to my psyche and memory yeah. bank as the Smashing Pumpkins were and Alice in Chains. And, um, very special time for me. I really see, this is why you're here because I knew we would connect I mean, but I love, I love that. Holly McNarland, what are some of the, um, what are some of the cuts that you like from her? Oh gosh. I mean, she had, what was that hit Elmo, yeah. I guess. And there was a couple of, um, like Stormy is a great tune that, yeah, I, that I love. Some more ballads too. I mean, I remember like going, even thinking back now, you've kind of just triggered this memory of being a teenager and going to shows and not having like a, SLR proper camera, but just sort of like a point and shoot camera. And I actually have photos of Holly McNerland um, playing. Like I was just watching the show and I think they're just from a disposable camera, but she's really pregnant in the pictures. I remember that. And this is so funny because many years later I ended up photographing her wedding, which was kind of a trip. And I remember telling her that story of being like, you know, I was such a big fan and I have pictures of you when your like son was in your belly singing. And so I think I definitely was like, had that music photo connection even before it was like actualized, you know, or I cool. had the tools to do it properly. But yeah. the West coast thing, um, it was always like, it, obviously from here it's over there, but there was this, I don't know. It was just a place I knew I wasn't going to get to anytime soon, but there was something really cool happening over there. And the fact that much music gave room to that, area with their own little show. What is his name? The host, the older dude, David, Terry, David Mulligan, Terry David Mulligan, TD, TDM. Yeah. Um, like what's this West coast and why are so many good bands? And then there's that whole connection to being not too far from Washington and Seattle and all that. Yeah. Thing. So there was that like crossover and that 
that energy going on. Yeah, it was it was definitely a fun time Very to be cool. a teenager and have all those you know, access to all that music and it definitely informed so much for me. And still as an adult, like I'll listen to all those records and be like, yep, holds up, you know, like. Will you meet me at the horseshoe and go see Limlifter? Yeah, let's do it. Oh man, that's, that's awesome. Um, what, this is something that I've often wondered. By the way, do you know Jacqueline Barber? I do. Yeah, I interviewed her. She's a Guelphite. I'm in Guelph now. Oh, she's, nice. She's going to be shooting our band, but. Nice. I love Jacqueline's her work. a beauty. And she says hello, by the way. Oh, hello, Jacqueline. Um, you've captured some pretty significant artists. Um, and maybe you're used to it, but I know that when I was managing Dark Horse on Queen West, there was a lot of celebrity that came in. And I was very aware of the fact that so-and-so was standing in front of me. Yeah. Kevin Drew brought in Gord Downey. Oh, nice. And it was yeah. the first time and only time my knees went weak. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. And he's like, hey, I'm Gord. What's your name? I'm like, I know who you are. <laughs> but I was like, but he meant it. And, yeah. and uh, I say this a lot. Like, the Canadian, the Canadian celebrity is very down to earth. Yeah. Very interested in who you are. Um, and I often wonder, like, how do you intimately share the space with someone and capture them and get them to work with you and to bypass who they are and find your way to the art and to the bottom line of capturing something through the other side of that lens. Like what, what's that process like? And, and, and there has to have been a learning curve for you. Yeah. I, Oh gosh, I don't know if I totally know how to answer that question. Um, you know, mo most people I work with, it's over uh, a long period of time. That's sort of like most of my working relationships. And of course, not always. And obviously, they all have to start somewhere. Yep. So I'm sure there is some sort of um, learning curve in which, you know, you're trying to understand someone and get to know them and build up that level of trust. I don't really know how to just, how to answer what that looks like at first. Um, and... I don't know how this comes across or how this sounds when I say this, but I feel like it's just so much to do with me and who I am as a person and how I move through a space. And I don't even know what that is that I'm doing. Obviously people connect to different people for a reason. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why I have these particular relationships, what it is about them, but um, there's just something about me and particular people that we work really well together. And that doesn't mean that it's going to look like that for everyone. Everyone has different sure. energies and you know things that they need from that relationship you know but the people that I've ended up cultivating these very long-term relationships with there's just something about us that click and we sort of move through the space together you've done a lot of work with Carly Ray Jepsen yeah um, Carly is someone I worked with for a very long time Carly is another example of someone that I sort of um, reached out to in the very early days and Man, said like you got a good uh, you're like a bloodhound you got, you got some good instincts with who to I ask know, I was gonna say like maybe I should work in A&R or something yeah. like that you yeah. know but um, yeah I don't know we just sort of these people I develop these relationships with and we keep them going and that's sort of some of the things that I'm proudest of in my career you know like working with City and Color mm -hmm. we're going on like almost 18 years or something like that and it's wow. something that I'm so incredibly proud of that we've we have this really beautiful friendship that keeps us like in each other's orbit, you know, and we were like, I just did a tour with him this past year 
and we had this really nice chat one night about how like everyone that's there we're all in it together because we're all trying to support each other mm. in this thing that we're trying to do it's all a very reciprocal right. thing you know like i believe in him he right. believes in me we all kind of go in this circle and we sort of called it like our mutual believe in you know that's so we cool. always say like thanks for mutual believing in me and that's the sense i get and uh and i'm like how what I'm witnessing is it's not normal. It, it's, it's, it happens few and far between. You're, I'm watching a traveling community, and that's something that is wholly organic, happenstance, and heavily relational. You cannot yeah. duplicate that. And you get the sense that that's something that has been hewned out of rock over time. Yeah. Uh, and it comes across. What, what's the, what's the, the Strombolopolis uh, dynamic? How did, how did you... Because uh, that's much music royalty. Totally. I mean, oh, sorry. Gosh, I, you know, I owe so much to Strombo. He is, um, yeah, afforded me so many incredible opportunities in my life. You know, half my portfolio of all these very iconic people that, like, you know, my jaw was on the floor being in their presence. I owe to Strombo. Wow. Um, and you know, not to get like. I don't know, hippy dippy about things, but I feel like you really, you know, I grew up watching that man on TV. He informs so much of what I love about music, yeah. especially like punk music and sort of different scenes. And I, I met him assisting someone actually. I was like on set with him. And it's, it's actually kind of a funny story because I remember during that time I was on set and I had a really bad cold. <laughs> and I was kind of like in the corner trying to stay away from everyone, kind of sniveling or whatever. And I remember he, I remember my dad saying he saw him at an airport one time and he went up to him and he's like, my daughter Vanessa said she was like on set with you. And he said, Starman was like, oh yeah, the girl with the cold. <laughs> oh my God. Which is so funny and kind of gross. But, um, he remembers you though. I know, he remembered me. And I remember like kind of running into him like off and on in different events and stuff. And I don't know if I got his email address or something like that, but I remember same thing. I emailed him and I was like, I would really love to take your photo sometime. And, um, then I just remember, like, I was pretty persistent about it. And one day I just get this email from someone at CBC and they were like, Strombo gave us your name. We need new photos for the hour, the show that he was doing at wow. the time. Like, is there time that you could do it? And I was like, yep, sign me up. And it was kind of one of those magical moments where I was like, okay, my teenage years of rotting in front wow. of much music. And then that's wild sneezing in front of this man, like, you know, all day <laughs> has led me to this, but. Yeah, same thing. We kind of like did this shoot, really hit it off. And then when he was doing the radio show, he invited me to come um, shoot one of the sessions. Hayden was cool. the first person. And then it kind of just became this thing that we did for four plus years. And yeah, some of the most, I will never forget that time of life. Like so important and incredible. And I owe a lot to him for sure. Wow. It's so interesting. The These people that our household names that played a genuine organic role in your life. That's very unique. Very, yeah. very cool. How does work come across your desk now? Like, because the early days you were, you were fishing and hunting for them. Um, but you're, uh, you, maybe it's an assumption, but you seem very established. How, how much is, are you hunting for work and how much is it coming across to your, to your desk? Um, I'm a little bit of a bad hunter. I could be a better hunter. <laughs> I'd be more of a gatherer. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's probably now sort of a bit of a, I, I mean, I have a ton of repeat clients. A lot of people that I work with are people that I've worked with before over the years. Cool. So I think it's a bit of a like, 
either that or a bit of a word of mouth um, okay. situation. I'm not very good at like actively promoting myself. I could be better. We live at a time where like that's all you're supposed to be doing. It's tough. And I struggle with that concept. And I'm actually, I don't think very good at it. I'm not naturally like a very showboaty person. I feel yeah. very uncomfortable on the internet and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm not actively hunting. But <laughs> I mean, enough things are coming through that are making me feel good. Um, and I'm trying to only do things that make me feel good. That's good. In this new landscape. But that's, you know, an ideal world and that doesn't always happen. And Let's talk about that, though. I think that there's a, there's a, there's a transitionary stage uh, in the entrepreneurial uh, journey where you are grateful for anything. And then you get validation from seeing uh, things come across your path. And then you get to the place where you've done it enough to go, okay, uh, there's a groove here. And when I deviate from the groove, I get my feathers ruffled i don't want to do what i don't want to do yeah. anymore what uh how long have you been on that path of going eh, i'm doing this my way now um well i will preface that and say that that is like an ideal world you know like obviously you have to work and do things and it's not to say that you know i am grateful to do the things i do so when i say that um I'm trying to do the things I want to do. I more mean the things that I know that I'm good at, that I can right. achieve, okay. um, can achieve what I'm after, what people are after. There are things that have come across for me. And then I sort of see examples of what people are after. And I just know that it's not in my wheelhouse that I won't be able to create that with them. So those are the things that you kind of say, like, I think there might be someone that's a little bit more suited to this than I am. But yeah, I know it's always ever evolving where you're like, okay, am I, putting out what I want to get back in the world that, right. you know, that's where I'm at of trying to do that. But I'm also a person with not a lot of um, perspective on myself. I'm really working on that of being better understanding myself and what I want and what I want to cultivate and, you know, my confidence in things. And yeah, it's a, it's a journey for sure. You still love it? A hundred percent. I love it so much. I'm so grateful. Like mm. you said, you know, at the beginning, we are so lucky that we're people that found something that we say like, hey, we love this and we can turn it into our lives and career. Not everyone has that. And that's, we're very remarkably lucky to be able to do that. You know, that your job can be something that you're actually passionate about and enjoy doing. But that also comes on the flip side of that. You know, I don't have a job where at the end of the day, I like hang up my hat and say like, I'm not thinking about this. I don't care about it. Like I go home and kind of obsess over things right. and my mind spins, you know, and that also has a lot of baggage intertwined into it as well. You know, your who you are and your self-worth and your identity is caught up in what you do as well. And that can be very tricky at times. Yes. Yes. That's a whole other conversation of, uh, yeah. Do you, en do you enjoy people by nature? Yes. Do you think you have to enjoy people or humans to be a good photographer? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I, <laughs> that's such a funny question. I mean, uh, I will say it like this. There's a photographer who like I admire and respect their work so much. I love it. They're like a, a blueprint for me. And I remember um, seeing an interview that they did and they were kind of talking about how... Um, 
they don't have to be friends with their subjects. It's actually quite the opposite. Like they don't want to have a relationship with them because they were sort of saying, I'm not here to make friends. That was sort of their preface about creating. And they felt like they were stronger in the way they create because they don't create these bonds. And I remember feeling exactly the opposite Mm. about what I do. And I feel like my method, um, the relationship is intrinsic to what I create because it's really reliant on that sort of like comfort and trust in that um, long-term relationship that we have going that makes us create these images that are stronger and better and deeper and more intimate and all those things. So I sort of said like, in my brain, I was like, well, I think I am here to make friends, you know? So... For me, I think I have to have that connection, but I don't think you. I don't think that. I got you. You have to. There's the objective approach, and then there's the intimate approach and relational. I, I mean, your methodology is clearly working. Your, I would say, maybe your greatest. Um, if you were to ask me from an outside perspective, outside of your work, you're probably one of your greatest accolades of your body of work and life's work would be the relationship. Yeah. But, like, it's not always, you know, like, so many of those photos you see from, like, House of Strombo sessions, like, those people sit in front of your camera for one minute and you have to try to achieve something. So, you know, of course, there's not a relationship there. You're not cultivating some (laughs) long-term bond with a person. You're just trying to make it happen. So there's always those scenarios. But I think in some of the other things you're citing, those, like, you know, longer-standing clients I have, those relationships are what make sort of those images that I'm craving, you know, that really like intimate portrait and, um, yeah, just sort of like, yeah, that fly on the wall perspective, I think takes that uh, relationship for me. Who's your favorite person to capture? Oh, I have too many favorites. It's like me asking which one of your kids is your favorite. (laughs) That's intense. You really do like what you do. Um, you know, I, lo- I there's so many people and I love them all for different reasons and that's what makes them all beautiful and unique. I can't picture, I can't pick one person, but you know. The Dallas Green work uh, that you do, I, that really comes through. I see it and I'm like, there's, there's just, more, it, there's more than just a, an image here that I, I don't know. It just seems lived in, in some kind of way. I like that. Thank you. That's cool. Yeah. Right on. What else do you want to do outside of this? Is there other, I have this, this theory, this working theory that so far has worked. Um, I have a revolving door of things that I'm passionate about and I need to keep going through that spinning door in order to keep myself happy and healthy and loving each of the pursuits. If I just stick in one, I'll likely wither. Yeah. Um, are there any other future passion projects that you want to parlay your gift into and, build something with or are you just too busy to even contemplate anything else um no i mean you know i think there's something to be said about always um learning and i would love to sort of um explore new avenues that sort of fit in with what i'm doing you know i'd love to learn a little bit more about video and filmmaking and all that kind of stuff um down the line but you know, right now I'm just, I think I'm just focusing on learning how to be a human a little bit again. Uh, I think, you know, like probably most people in the world, COVID really took took it out of me. And 
Um, there was sort of a, a lot of growing pains coming back to the world of trying to understand like who I am, where I fit in, how I communicate with people, what I'm comfortable with, what my mm. boundaries are. And I think before that I was spending a lot of time focusing on like producing work and how do I get more work and putting myself on the internet. And now I'm just like, who am I? What do I like? How could I be better at being a friend and a human and a partner and you know just all those very real things that probably help make me better at my job so those are sort of my evolving passion projects right gotcha. now is just like yeah some self-work and some self-love and i i applaud you with that so one of the i even mentioned this to my wife i was really impressed um at how honest you were with me in our communications back and forth over these last two years about stuff you were going through, stuff you were working through. You were so transparent and so forthright with like, I'm going through this and I need to take care of this. And, uh, you know, you, you offered information that I didn't even really have any right to, but you were willing enough to like, go out. this is what's going on in my camp. And I was, there was such a generous, um, act uh via email and i was like i am so grateful that she was willing to tell me that detail <clears throat> and i got the real sense that you were going through a serious like cathartic time yeah um can we camp on that a little bit and talk about like because like you know this ink spot called covid <clears throat> I, i've had countless conversations about this from, from a business perspective and restaurant and creative. And, you know, it was a wildfire that for many people I spoke with burnt down much, but actually seeded the ground and new things came out of, it was a time of reinvention and survival. And other people were forever changed from it. And I get the sense that you were rocked by it. Can we talk about like what was going on some of the things you traversed through that time? Is that, is that a fair question? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's sort of a, um, I don't want to say like a blessing and a curse situation. I mean, COVID was invariably horrible for mm -hmm. the world and for so many people. And um, yeah, it was a very tough time. But uh, like right before COVID hit I found out that my dad had cancer Oof. and uh that was in December of uh 2019 and you know you get the call that no one ever wants to get mm -hmm. and you know unfortunately my dad's situation was um like a terminal situation and uh at the time he had just moved to Fredericton New Brunswick to uh live with his partner Susan they had moved from Ottawa and she had gotten a job at um, UNB. She's a student counselor. So they had moved there and sort of shortly after my dad got this news. And so, you know, at the time, and my dad and I are, were incredibly close, you know, mm. like he was like my bestie. Right. And so at the time I was sort of bouncing between Toronto and Fredericton, you know, to go and support him and visit. And you were the only child. I'm the only child. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, it's kind of funny, like the way the universe works. Sometimes I have kind of a lot of faith and all that stuff. But, um, you know, the day before COVID, the day that actually COVID was announced, like, you know, as like a state of emergency and all that, 
I flew to Fredericton that day with just one luggage, just thinking I was going to visit my dad. He was in the hospital at the time. And then they sort of declared this, like, COVID as a state of emergency. And um, the Atlantic kind of did this very particular thing where they made a bubble. Yes. And so it was sort of like you couldn't go in and out of the bubble. And so I sort of accidentally moved to Fredericton because the bubble hit and I wanted to be with my dad and, you know, at the time, no one knew how long COVID, everyone was just like, oh, in a couple of weeks or in a month or whatever. And it ended up being, you know, however long COVID went on for, but I ended up accidentally moving there. I had this one luggage, it was February. Wow. And, you know, I had a life in Toronto. I had a partner, I had a dog, all that kind of stuff. And I sort of had to call up my partner and say like, okay, I'm going to be here as long as the bubble is happening. And then you know, the bubble lasted and my dad's illness sort of progressed and um, he ended up passing away in Ugh. December 2020. But, um, you know, I'm sorry. yeah, I mean, I, I will say I'm sort of like grateful for that time because I got to be with him at a time where the world was completely still mm. and there was nothing else that my mind had to attend to. Wow. So, you know, it's not like small mercy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not like I was kind of sitting there thinking, well, there was no ego part of my brain that had to get back to another life, which had things to do. You know, I could just completely focus on that time with him. So, you know, I'm very grateful that we had that small. What a strange, special, unique time for you. Yeah. How many months were you there? Um, so I was there from, uh, like I sort of moved there accidentally in February 2020, 2020. Um, and then, or maybe it was March. Now I'm sort of getting things confused, but, um, and then I was actually there till September of 2021. My partner ended up moving there halfway through, um, that time they sort of opened up the bubble for like a little blip. So he packed up our whole apartment and life in Toronto, put it in a storage locker, flew with the dog. And then we got an apartment in Fredericton and kind of supported my dad wow. and his partner for that time until my I, dad passed. I had no idea. Yeah, and then we just, we stayed there sort of until September of 2021. You know, there's like a lot of logistical things and wanted to help my dad's partner get set up in her new life. And, you know, things weren't quite coming back to life yet. So we were sort of biding our time. And, you know, Fredericton was a really beautiful place to do that because it was quite slow and quiet and didn't know a soul, didn't have to think about too much. And, yeah. Good job, daughter. That's yeah, I mean, special. Wow. Um, the further you get away from it, I mean, it's still so recent and so fresh. Um, do you think that that time will continue to be galvanized as like one of the special times? Like what's, what's, I mean, the, the, the tension between like what was going on and why you were there is horrible. Yet you still had this time with him in this quiet area yeah. at a quiet time on the earth. What a unique stage setting. Yeah, I mean, I have this really funny moment of, you know, like there are, there are really beautiful moments, there are really hard moments, really heartbreaking moments, mm. you know, it's a mix of a lot of things, but I have this one funny memory of um, a really special record to me and my dad is Elvis Costello's My Aim is True. Nice. It's like something we listened to from the time I was a kid. And I remember one day we were kind of sitting outside and we just put that record on 
And then the song just, and we were kind of quiet, just listening. And then the song Waiting for the End of the World came mm. on. It just started playing. And I just remember we looked at each other and we both just started laughing so hard because it was just like, that did kind of feel like what we were doing. You know, we were also oh, too wow. like, not only COVID, but like all the mad, like Trump in power and mm -hmm. all the madness of that. And we kind of just had this moment of reprieve where we just stared at each other and just started laughing like life man you know wow yeah that's but that's gold i yeah i'm very grateful for that time it was a very complicated time but you know i can't imagine if it had to go down i can't imagine any other way and you know having just some stillness to really take it all in and be present you know was that, was that transformative for you did you come away from that different oh of course yes um i mean the loss of a father for sure but I mean, the work that was done in you uh, as a human in your own right, on your, in your own stage. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an ever-evolving process right. now. I mean, grief is a monster and mm. it takes a lot to get through those hurdles and I'm still doing it. You, yeah, that going back to the emails, which I, in some weird way I kind of cherish because I, you managed to convey like this journey you're on and I was like... She, and I knew you needed a very, very wide berth, but you just were like, this is happening. And I'm telling you, and I was like, what, what is this? What is the story with this? And this is, that's wild. Um, did you document your time there with him as a um, photographer? No, not no. really. I, yeah, it's so funny. I, you know, I, t I took some pictures of, you know, him and I and our, like, you know, a daily walk is something that we did. We did a lot of walking while he was, like, still strong enough to do that. And I do have some photos from that time. I have some videos. I did record some voice notes of him talking a lot about, like, albums and things he really liked. Mm. We had a lot of nice conversations. Um, but no, not in the instinctual photographer way. And I think that's also, like, that does speak to me as I have a bit of a... Sometimes I feel like it's not a failing. There are just different ways people do things. And I have like a bit of a line. You're just being a daughter. Yeah, I was yeah. just being a daughter. I wasn't yep. thinking about that part. And I don't think I would be capable of doing that, you know, in that moment. Is it, uh, are, are you a keeper by nature in terms of, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a moment curator. I take, I, I do a lot of screen grabs of like a moment. I'm like, and if I didn't, I don't know if we'd have memories because my wife doesn't think about that stuff, but I'm like, that's a moment. That's a moment. I can't forget that. I keep my, my kids stuff or old pajamas that are yeah. so intrinsically like, Oh, that was Sam when he was at that stage. I can't throw those out. Um, I'm kind of an emotional pack rat, but maybe that doesn't mean that a photographer who captures things, captures things for themselves. Where, where do you fall on that? Do you, retain and want to hold on to moments and memories or are you better at doing it objectively for a project or other people? Uh, I feel like I'm a mix of both because that always lives within me. So even yeah. times where I say, I just want to experience something, I have a really hard time then not trying to document it. Right. You know, like my partner and I advocately go to shows together. He's like a huge music guy too. Cool. And there will be times where I'll be at a show and I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to take my camera. I'm just going to watch this. And then like halfway through the thing, he's like, do you want me to hold your bag? Do you want to go stand up? Like I Yoink. just, I really can't help myself. So, you know, it's a little bit of a mix of both, but I learned that um, how I feel like inside in my soul is really intrinsic to what I create. And when I am 
not feeling good, I find that really challenging to do, especially when it's something so personal. So, um, you know, it took me a long time to take photos again, really. I took Mm. a few photos when I lived in Fredericton. I, like, a couple people, there was a couple bands there, people that I met, and they created friendships with them over the time. And so there was, like, one or two jobs I did, but... I had a hard time creating and it took me a while to get back to that. I had a really hard time listening to music actually Mm. for a while after. I just found it like upsetting. So I do have a bit of a line. Like I I think I need to feel good to make things, you know? I I don't want to move on too quick from this because I think this is a special time moment. Uh, you know, I have <clears throat> actually I have about six people around me right now that are dealing with cancer. It's actually wild. Um, a close friend of 20 years just had a baby. He's just turned 40, uh, two other kids and he has uh, granular cellular carcinoma. I'm, I'm getting this wrong, but 20 people on the earth have it. Oh gosh. And, uh, it's so new and so rare that they don't even know how to deal with it. They're just going to kind of throw everything at it and see what takes strong, incredibly awesome human being. And all of us, you know, he had like, he had like a growth under his armpit and fast forward, they didn't know what the hell they were dealing with. It took almost three months to diagnose him and like, we didn't know what this was because it's actually this thing. And it's so rare that there's no way we would have even figured it out. And then all of a sudden it's more about quality of life and managing pain. And it doesn't look good. Yeah. Um, and it's like overnight and there's something about them wearing the toque and they're in pajamas and they've got moccasins on and they're in the bed the hospital bed and immediately they go from your friend to they're on set in a surreal scenario called a hospital room and the paradigm is just switched and everything's upside down suddenly they're the sick friend it's the worst and I had this moment and I was like afraid to broach the subject but I, I have this medium that I have access to and this passion to hear people's stories where I sat next to him on his bed and I said, Phil, can I record your story? Can we talk? Can I, can I get this as a point of documentation for all time and hear, you, hear from you? And I was like, is that insensitive? Is that, un- I, I don't know. Your children need to know the story what's your story? What are you going through? And he's like, I would love that. He's got songs that he's written that he wants to record. So we're scrambling right now to kind of find ways to get him into the studio and get that song written or that song recorded for him. Or I'm, I'm scared to do it. I'm not scared to do it. I'm, I need to do it. I want to do it. But the surrealness of what that implication is of having that conversation and knowing that he knows what that implication means, it's just all too much. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, how I did think we get here? Well, I think it probably entails, you know, admitting to yourself that something is happening, you mm-hmm. know? And yeah, I, I do. 
I understand that, but I also feel like, you know, as someone who does what you do, what I do, those things are also important mm -hmm. for, like you said, you know, for other people that know yeah. and love these people. You know, I remember one of my sort of fears, like, you know, in, in 2020, not only did I lose my dad, but I lost both my grandmothers. They Oof. both passed at the same time. And, you know, my, my dad's mother passed, like, um, in June, my Nana. And, you know, I was very incredibly close to her. And her and my dad had so many stories about the family and who everyone was and all these tales. And I remember when they passed, I felt this immense... Um, not pressure, but I was like, I don't remember everything. I don't mm. remember all these stories. What was that one about this right. person and where were they? And, you know, there's so much pressure to remember people's lives and the history and all the stories that go with it. And I think, you know, trying to even do a fraction to um, record someone's life or get to understand or know them. And, you know, all of that stuff is really hard because you do, you know, you're doing it with sort of... Um, there's a bit of a timeline yeah. on things, but, you know, even going back to what you were saying about, you know, me being very honest with you, I think that was something I kind of learned a little bit in time with my dad, because I remember one time we were having this conversation when he was sick and he was sort of telling me some very hard things that he had some fears over. Mm -hmm. And I'm a person that's always like, uh, wants to see the the glass half full kind of thing. So I was trying to be like, well, but there's this or but this or but this. And I remember he kind of looked at me and was like, Vanessa, just let me say the hard mm. stuff and don't, I don't want to sort of hear the other end of the stick. And I sort of thought like, okay, sometimes you just wow. have to um, listen to people and not wow. try to make things better. And I think when I was being honest with you, there was a couple of people in my life that I was just sort of like letting them really have the truth of it because I feel like sometimes it's all you can do is be like, really honest with someone and I think sometimes it can be met with more than you expect in a really good way you know? absolutely like you're saying like okay I hear you I yeah. see you I relate to this and I think that's really powerful yeah. you know and sometimes it can be hard to say and you don't want to feel like you're dumping on someone but sometimes no. you just got to do it you know there's something uh, outstandingly human and uh, humbling about someone choosing to allow you into an intimate thing going on and, and you're, you're remarked by it um I think the power of this medium as a whole, this podcast, it, it, the more people are get real and, and humble, the more people will go with you. Yeah. There's power in honesty and humility for sure. I think maybe my greatest life's work is finding a way to just be honest with people about how I'm feeling. Um, there were many times in my life that was kind of all I had. That was my only power at that time. At many times it was like, I'm just going to be honest with yeah, but I bet you more often than not, you're met with compassion and understanding yeah, and absolutely. people relate to what you're saying because we're all kind of going through this thing together, yep. you know, and different paths. But I think, you know, a lot of our experience is probably mirrored in others and we can find sort of, yeah, that connection that I think we so often crave when we're going through hard things is someone being like, I understand yep. or I've been there or I see you, you know. If you could distill the whole experience in New, in New Brunswick and with your dad and you know if, if you were to walk out with this trophy of what you're leaving with do you have any idea of what that would be? Um, I mean what I've said you know throughout this process is 
um, you know, he and I had such a beautiful relationship for our whole lives. And um, what was his name? Uh, Ken. Ken. Kenny. Right uh, and there is sort of no doubt in my mind about how much he and I loved each other and how much we tried with the time we had. You know, we did a really good job with awesome. the short amount of time we had. And, um, you know, like, I don't want to say there's no que questions unanswered, you know, like every day there are things that I wish I could call him and mm. ask him. But, um, you know, I think we did our very best and there was absolutely no shortage of love and respect there. So for me, I can kind of walk away from that situation as hard as it is and just be like, you know what, we just, we loved each other so fiercely and that's kind of all that matters, you know, at the end of the day. I feel like I, I want to share this with you because uh, you're sharing a lot and I've mentioned it a couple of times on the podcast with some really great guests that went there with me. I uh, Talking about loss and the people that you love fiercely, you mentioned that, you know, fiercely. I love that. My grandmother, um, Jessie, she, my mom had me at 19, so she was young. Uh, we were about 20, she turned 20 a, a week later. So my mom and I have always been 20 years apart and we were like siblings and friends and mother and son. It was very unique dynamic, which meant my grandparents were also young too. They were even younger than me when I was born. I'm 46. Um, my grandmother was like a second mom to me and, uh, she was a champion of me, loved me incredibly. When she passed of cancer, I wept for the people mourning her, but I didn't cry for her. And it took me years of wondering why wasn't I upset that she died? What's wrong with me? How is that possible? She was so good to me. And it dawned on me that she loved me so perfectly and so completely and wholly that my cup will always be full. And that was a relief for me. It had nothing to do with my lack of care for her. She just hit the mark so well and so consistently like, I'm good. Yeah. And I say this as well. I hear her in how I love my kids, how I say things, the inflection of my voice, the words I choose. I'm like, oh my God, that's her. It's wild. And she's still alive in how I love my kids. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? That's such a beautiful thing though. Yeah. Like, and it's like, that's, that is, that's the truth. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, there's, you're never, I don't think you're ever going to have enough time with the people in the world that you love you could have all the time in the world and it wouldn't be enough right yep, yep. so I think to walk away feeling like that like mm -hmm. of course I would love much more time with my dad but I yeah we did the best with the time we were given and you know that right on yeah makes me full and loved you know heartfelt thank you for, for going there with me thank you yeah, it's very generous listening. of you how do we segue out of that? I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to be too heavy for too long. I didn't invite you here to make you drudge up too much stuff, but um, it's life. It is life. I, I, you know, it's going back to the to art and having that conversation with my friend Phil and recording him. Um, it is incredible how art, if you do it long enough, it will take you to some pretty intense places, and you 
your vocation within art puts you in situations where you have to use it to get through something or to aid a scenario. And communication is an art, I believe. A podcast is a forum for the art form of connecting with humans. And when I started this, I didn't ever see this coming. I'm going to record my friend. And there's a one of the quotes I love is you, you uh, it's your responsibility as an artist to discuss and talk about what's going on in the world today. I think Joni Mitchell might have said that. Is there in your work with capturing? Um, are you ever afforded the ability to say something beyond just capturing? Uh, an image are you able to reframe my question are you ever given the opportunity to make a statement about where you're at or the world around you in in the medium that you've chosen or is it pretty much one hallway that you're down and that's capturing an image are you and if you and if you would you even want to say something as a, as a photographer you mentioned the fly on the wall thing a lot. Is that even in your wheelhouse of wanting to do? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of an example of... I mean, I'm sure there are things that um, come up for me that are kind of personal. Like I think about... This may not be exactly what you're speaking about, but I just this is the one thing that kind of came to mind. Is I remember actually that... Um, and this is not... A, the world at whole or anything like that. I mean, it's a lot going on in the world. But um, I remember one time uh, Scott Weiland came into Strombo's house. Nice. Yeah, I was a huge Stone huge, Temple huge Pilots fan. fan. Um, that Tiny Music album had yep. a really big impact on me. Yep. I was a teenager, and uh, this is—I didn't really make a commentary on this, but um, you know, at the at the time that he came in, he wasn't a very well person. He was really afflicted by his addictions. Or, you know, it was really v- visibly obvious. And, um, mm. you know, it's, it's hard to say without, um, like, this is not meant to pass judgment on anyone, you know, in his camp or anything like that. I just, seeing him move around in that space, it felt like he was so visibly um, unwell and it was sort of a machine that still kept going, like they were still touring and doing all these things. And I remember feeling quite heartbroken mm. for him that, you know. Almost like a zoo animal being on tour. A little bit. And that's not to speak upon in any way about, yeah. you know, anything that was going on behind the scenes. I don't know how was, that stuff Was he works. with STP when he was in there? Or was he no, doing his own his thing? No, it was his other uh, outfit, like. The Wild Abouts? Uh, yes. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember at the time, um, you know, I used to do portraits of people that came in and I just remember he seemed so unwell and I remember the producer at the time was like, do you want to grab a portrait of him? And I said no, because I just didn't feel like right about it. Right. Um, and I, I feel like maybe he honestly died maybe about a week later, which is really um, oh. heartbreaking. And I remember posting a picture of him in, in the living room, you know, and kind of writing something about how I feel like, you know, sometimes the world is too heavy for the people that are in it, you know, people that are creating art, you know, a lot of the time are very afflicted by mm-hmm. so many things and how just observing him in that space was really difficult and feeling like I didn't want to take advantage of him and feeling like, 
maybe sometimes the world takes advantage a little bit of people that that's good create things so you know when you say that that kind of stuff comes to mind mm. where that's not really me making a commentary just me sort of yeah not wanting to take advantage sometimes also in my position of mm-hmm. you know I, I can think of another actual instance that you brought up Gord Downey and I remember being at uh, an event at Massey Hall that he was doing kind of near the end of his life and seeing him backstage and I, yeah, I remember there was someone else there that was really trying to capture his likeness and me feeling like very uncomfortable with that concept of feeling like, you know, I, I see him there. I see like, you know, the position he's in and not wanting to, it's not about just photographing anyone for the sake of photographing people and sort of respecting the space they're in. And, mm. you know, I really respect, admire him and, you know, just having one photo of him, you know, like I photographed him on stage, but trying to sort of capture him in a moment backstage just didn't feel right, you know? I think that's kind of um, really indicative of who you are as a person. I think knowing when not to shoot is just as important as when to grab a moment. Yeah. That's huge. Wow. Yeah, I feel like that's important to me too. You know, I, 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 res- I respect people. I respect how hard existence is sometimes. And when you're in a position where you're a high profile person, people want a lot from you Mm -hmm. and that doesn't always make it right. You know, Mm. how are you doing for time? We're about one, one hour, 13 minutes. You okay? Yeah, I'm good. Um, You just afforded such a unique situation where you have an audience with people that we see on glossies and on TV. Um, it's not even really a question. It's just a, it's just kind of a statement. It's just it's interesting. Um, do you ever get used to it? Um, mm, I think in my head I can always acknowledge like whoa like yeah okay this is happening you know I don't I wouldn't say get used to it. I mean there's people that of course I've worked with a long time so you kind of you do. Yeah, you get used to those circumstances, but there's never, there's always times where I step back and think like, whoa, I will remember this forever. Yeah. This is like, yeah, very important to me. These people are very important. But it, yeah, I've been in the presence of some really incredible people that I have to take a minute to be like. Did you shoot Robert Plant? I did. That's so. It was Rolling Stone, wasn't it? Um, that was at Strombo's house. Rolling Stone did use that photo, but. That's a big, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's very, very big deal. I was. Like. That's wild, man. That's wild. Uh, who were some of the ones that were just all too much for you? Like, oh my God, this is, there's no way that you're, not, you're completely unflappable. Who, who was it was like, wow, this is nutty? Um, you know, I mentioned Elvis Costello before. Mm-hmm. He's such an important one for me. And he came into Strombo's house. And that's probably like one person that I've been pretty shook by. Um, and... The whole time he was doing an interview, I felt like I was just kind of staring at him with my mouth open, and I feel like he kind of noticed because he kept like looking at me. I think he was like, "This girl is really like that one." I was a bit like, um, "Yeah." I mean, I would say the Beastie Boys are pretty crazy. You shot Beasties? Well, Mike D and Ad Rock, but nice. uh, yeah, and we shot them uh, in New York, in like the Lower East Side on the street, and it was only. Wow. 
for wow. like a minute, but it was the craziest minute of my life. And then after I fell on the sidewalk and basically like licked the side, like I think I was just like delirious. <laughs> and I'll tell you a funny story about that is that um, before I took their picture, uh, Ad Rock, as you can imagine, is kind of like a bit of a goofster, mm-hmm, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he just looked at everyone in the room and he was like, quick, everyone tell me a story about the f- a favorite time you've ever farted. And I was like, uh, just totally flabbergasted by the question. And I was like, I'm going to need a minute to think about this. <laughs> and then when we went outside to take the picture, I was like, I got I to gotta say something. He asked me, like, when am I ever going to be in this situation again? So I told him my favorite fart story and he laughed. Wow. And someone took a picture and I was like, that's wild. That's me talking about farts. <laughs> I know that's such an immature story, but, but no, no. it works so perfectly but it's, with it's the surrealness that, yeah, that of that stuff. Of, and I was like, of course this would be happening right now and I have to just embrace it and I can't dodge the question because I love it. the king asked me. <laughs> Who, uh, Rick Rubin, you ever had a chance to shoot him? No, I wish. I though. feel like that would be a I wild. just picked up his book though. I've yeah. heard that it's like... He's a dude. Yeah, very enlightening for the creative process. Uh, going back to, we'll wind down shortly, just a couple of uh, books that I think you might dig. Um, have you checked out Fleas Asked for the Children? It's really good. Okay. Um, and uh, Mark Lanigan from Screaming Trees, he has a book called Sing Backwards and Weep, and it's an autobiography of his time coming up in Seattle. Um, really good. Okay, cool. Really, I don't know if you're like a stone... Uh, uh, Queens of the Stone Age, Screaming Trees fan, but like, he's a dude. Yeah. And he was like best friends with Lance, Lance Daly and he was tight with uh, Kurt and all that stuff, but uh, good book. And I'm, I'm deliberately taking my time reading it. Also, Tom Wilson from Junk House, his book, Beautiful Scars. Okay. Excellent. And they're I'll turning that into- ask you for this again. Yeah, later, I'll, I'll, but... I'll email it to you, but he, they're, also, they're turning it into um, a, the, uh, a theatrical play. Oh, wow. It's his book, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm in my reading era. Cool. I'm trying to. Uh, he was get a bucket off the list. Phone and, yeah, I bet. Um, you know what? I'll send you a list of some stuff. And then uh, Ruth Reichel, she was the editor in chief of Gourmet Magazine. She had a book called uh, Save Me the Plums. And it picks up from New York 9 11 in the Gourmet offices. And it's, oh, it's wow. pretty wild. Have you seen um, the documentary Meet Me in the Bathroom? Uh, the, about the nightclub, right? Uh, it's a, sort of about like the like New York in the heyday of um, like the yeah yeah yeahs and Interpol. And, no, I want to. Yeah, just because you brought up sort of, cool. um, it sort of basically starts around the time of nine eleven and really incorporates wow. sort of um, how that informed a lot of the music being made at that time. And I feel like you would really, I would dig that the, that Interpol era uh, and like LCD sound system right. and that kind Brooklyn. Of, Okay, yeah. so my manager Malachi at St. James, he's been he's been teaching me about LCD sound system, and he's been reading me the, their lyrics. And this particularly, I think it's called the Black Page. It's about Bowie, a song about Bowie. Bowie had kind of taken him under his wing. Lyrically, some of the most profound lyrics I've heard in a long, long time. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of some other stuff book wise. But it's, it's those books, it's those moments where it's like, this is why I am trying to pursue this medium. I want to hear people's stories. And yeah. Tom Wilson was a big deal for me when he came on. Yeah, I mean, I love, I love just 
hearing people where they've sort of come from and yeah. their journeys and you know yeah. this this was a cool moment he uh he was working on his second book because his first book was a hit and he read me live on the air um the chapter he wrote that day and then he said to me this was that was really hard for me rocky because i technically shouldn't have shared what i've written because it hasn't been published yet and he goes but i also have I'm a little bit dyslexic and I have like some severe anxiety reading out loud. Oh, wow. So I had this like local God yeah. do that for me and with me. And, yeah. I was, and then he goes, okay, I have to go pee. And he like, I kept recording and he ran to the bathroom. <laughs> like, this is perfect. But uh, there's something about like uh, an artist that you've watched your whole life. And when he's writing about some of the hellacious scenarios he's been in and he's mentioning streets you lived on or passed through, like something about a local native who's become a local legend writing about a city that you know intimately. It's yeah. so, it connects you in such a unique way. Are you, are you a New York fan? I love New York. I love New York. Where were you, where were you on 9-11? Oh, uh, I'm just I, doing a quantum leap shift. No, here. no, it's okay. Yeah. I actually really remember that. Well, I don't know what, uh, I mean, I was in grade 11 or 12. No, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I remember, I have this very vivid memory of I would wake up every day with um, an alarm clock that would go to the radio. Okay. It was like I was listening to Fox or something like that. It would just wake me up in the morning. And I remember the alarm clock waking up with the news of that, but I felt I was still kind of half asleep, so I felt like I was dreaming what mm. the news was reporting. Wow. And then I remember waking up and going to school, and actually my first class was photography class, and I remember... Uh, my teacher, Mr. Collins, sitting us all down and explaining to everyone what had happened and then saying, like, does anyone want to talk about this? Wow. And people were, like, crying. People were storming out. And then I remember they sent kids home that day from school. And I just remember being like, I thought I dreamt that because wow. I had heard it coming through the radio. Yeah, just... And you knew intrinsically that the world would not be the same after that. I was working at a hair salon. Wow. And uh, I remember that morning, uh, Aaliyah had died maybe a week before that, and I was driving in, and uh, it was a beautiful day, not a cloud in the sky, and customers come in every 15 minutes at a hair salon. And at the top of the day, the first customer came in and said, did you hear what happened? There's a plane flew into the World Trade Center, and I'm thinking like a Cessna, like a small plane. Yeah. And every 15 minutes, there was another development. And I'm like, we're under attack. It was like, and then the owner of the hair salon brought up an old eighties black and white TV and we saw the second plane hit. And, uh, I ultimately ended up losing my job because of that, because he was in, he was, he had a lot of like real estate holdings and he's like, I have to let you go. You're the most recently hired and it's about to get really tough yeah. economically. He's like, I've got to let you go. But I just knew, I knew that I said to my brothers, we were walking a blockbuster video to get a movie. And I'm like, guys, not going to be the same. Yeah. Moving on to that though, back to music. Interestingly, I think about four days later, they did a live feed between New York and London and some other cities. And they did like a, a fundraiser and Bono and U2 did walk on live. Natalie and Brulia and some other artists were singing back up. And they, they threw to London, and it, was, it wasn't it was you too. It was four lads heartbroken and 
confused about what was going on in the world. And Bono said, hello from London. And the song started. And then they broke into like a hallelujah. They were riffing on the word hallelujah. And it was the most human, powerful, artistic, raw moment I don't think I had ever seen. And I was folding laundry in my mom's house. And I was like, I just watched humans try to make sense of what's going on yeah. and singing their hearts out. It was wild. Yeah. I mean, thinking about like, so how old would you have been So then? I'm 46. That happened in 01. I think it was 23, maybe 23, 22, 23. Yeah. I was uh, maybe like 14, 15 okay. or something like that. And even like us speaking about it, I feel like that was a real time of life of like sort of the loss of age of innocence yep. type of thing because sort of the realities of mm -hmm. the world you know like I don't think before that I could think of something that horrific that you would learn about and know that it was real and I think that just really altered a lot of people especially young people of just being like wow you know like yeah yeah and the fact that they're teaching they have it in history books now because there's a generation that doesn't weren't there for it which is a mind blow yeah man oh man yeah but chat i mean not to segue but you i think you would really like that documentary because it's very interesting sort of talking about i'm gonna watch it tonight yeah I, I think it's on it's on one of the is it on crave yes yeah also have you watched the curse yet i haven't oh. i've heard i've been i it's on my list because i just saw poor things what'd um, you think of that i mean Visually, like visually, it's beautiful. The most incredible, wild movie. I, I just watched a. Um, I'll find it and send it to you because you might find it interesting. Uh, a sort of breakdown with the cinematographer, and he sort of talks about sort of the choices they cool. made with the lenses and how they filmed things. There's it's actually really there. incredible. Um, that movie was a lot to digest. Yeah. Like uh, I found it irksome, um, but it looked good. Yeah. But it left me feeling weird. I she mean, was good. Yeah, uh, everyone's performance was good, but as a as a whole, I was like, eh, I don't think I'm going to see that again. But uh, I found it kind of sad. I found it sad yes, and heavy. And it was dark. Yeah, it's very dark, and you know, like. But Emma Stone's good. Yeah, and I I'm also on on the on the topic of film. I I'm very late to the party with the Barbie movie, and I have to tell you that Ryan Gosling was a revelation. <laughs> I haven't seen the Barbie movie. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. It's, I know it's not for it's, any lack of interest. You no, know, it, it, it was yeah. more than I thought it would be. Yeah, I'm like this. This thing has teeth. Like it's it's intelligent. And 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 uh, I came across uh, Ryan Gosling on a show called Breaker High. Oh my gosh, they filmed Breaker High in Vancouver, and Did I remember they? seeing Ryan Gosling yeah. and whatever his um, his friend like Jimmy. 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 Yes. yes, I remember seeing Jimmy at a bus stop one time and I was like, oh my God, it's Jimmy. And I, I was so impressed. I was just, I, I love that show. And so uh, Gosling's love interest from that show, Tamira, yeah. was my regular at Dark Horse. Oh. And Sean and, and Ryan Gosling used to call her T for Tamira in the, in the show. And she came up and I'm like, what's up, T? <laughs> she, could give Did this, she, laugh? she shot me this like side look. She's like, did you just call me T? I'm like, yes. She goes, I'll let you get away with that. I don't usually let people do that. But she ended up becoming a regular forever, the whole time. And just, well, we, we take a serious diversion here, but wild. Uh, I will absolutely watch that documentary tonight. Um, yeah, quite, quite yeah. cool and interesting and sort of the rise of music and creativity pre the internet, really, because right. there's this whole, 
Yeah, you'll you'll see, but it was actually really before like Spotify or that streaming or anything is in play. The schism and, yeah. between where we are now and where it was. And I remember um, I was in New York City, Times Square, Virgin Store. No, was it H&M? We were somewhere and Interpol Obstacle 1 was playing on a huge screen TV inside a clothing store. I had never seen that before and I fell hopelessly in love with it. And I bought it across the street at the Virgin Megastore. And I listened to that album on repeat on my Walkman the whole time I was in New York. So now whenever I hear that album, I smell the diesel um, and the grime of New York in my nostrils, in my memory. Isn't that so cool yeah. though how music can oh. do that? I mean, I saw this funny meme the other day and it was like a guy and it said like, or was it wasn't a meme, it was a video. I feel so old sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but he's like, me in the retirement home, I can't remember anything except every single word to the Savage Garden song and he's nice. like singing it. And I'm like, that would be me because I can remember the most obscure l- lyrics like a song will come on but i can't remember what happened yesterday so yeah, I, I i hear you um what are some of the desert island albums for you oh gosh that's hard have you seen interpol live they're, i have i saw they, them recently. they sound fantastic they're really boring though they're open for you too uh i saw them this past summer they played with spoon and maybe metric or something like that oh. But anyways, it was quite cool. I had never seen them before. And it's so funny. Interpol and my brain are a British band. I know they're not. I know. But I always thought that they were. So seeing this documentary, I was like, oh. And they're one of those bands that sort of passed me by, but for no reason in particular. There's just too much music. But yeah, it was super cool. Desert Island album. I don't know, man. It's a tough one. I know. What would be yours? Throwing it back to me, eh? Um... Well, because I know we're on similar musical wavelengths, maybe you'll... Okay, I'll tell you what. So, Richard Ashcroft's Alone With Everybody that came out in 2000. I still listen to it. I love it. Um, Siamese Dream by the Pumpkins. Pump- oh, yeah. Pumpkins were my band. Um, when everyone was head over heels for Nirvana and Pearl Jam, I found the Pumpkins and I'm like... I was like, I saw the video for today. And I was... I felt electricity surging through my body. I'm like, I don't know what that was, yeah. but I need, that's, that's mine. Siamese dream slash melancholy. Um, <sighs> Jesus Christ, superstar, the musical. <laughs> I, 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 I know it's random, yeah. but my family always watched it and they always sang it because it was a big deal back then. Um, it was a rock opera and it was like it defied all norms and I, that's what I grew up with. So I learned how to sing to Prince. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so speaking of Purple Rain probably. Oh yeah. Um, Jar of Flies by Alice in Chains. So you're good at this. You know. I'm a weirdo, man. I'm all over the place and probably Octune Baby by you too. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. I like, um, I like envisioning you like just as you are right now <laughs> but stranded on a desert island with Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> Blaring in the background. It would happen. It, if I had a speaker, you could be rest assured it would happen. Um, any artists that you would love to work with? Oh, um, yes, of course. So many. Uh, and and where, where would you like to shoot them? Oh, um, I mean, 
Last year, last year, I'm, the years are blurring together a little bit for me, so forgive me, but I had the opportunity to really briefly photograph idols live. I got like, I got hooked up with the first three song photo pass yes. and I kind of forgot to take photos half the time because I was really like mesmerized by what was happening in front of me. So I would love the opportunity to work with those guys again, even in a live setting because they're just so powerful. Cool. Like their music is so powerful, but, um, Oh my God, so many bands. It's really hard to, uh, it's hard to think on the spot. Well, how long do you have on average to shoot a band? It really depends. Like if we're doing a press shoot, it, it's just so relative to like what they'll give me. Like hopefully a, f a full day is always the ideal scenario you get a to, full day? to create, like if you're creating press images for people and okay. you're doing multiple looks and things like that, but then sometimes you, you get what you get. Are you nervous before you shoot people? Um, yes. Is that a good thing? Yes. Means you, I, I believe that it means you care. I feel like if I lose yeah. that feeling, um, I don't want that. I don't want that passive feeling. I want to like care so For much sure. that it makes me feel like ill. <laughs> I, yeah. I still, uh, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a, my life's work has been, well, let's split down the middle. It's been music and, and being chef. Um, but I still daydream about the next day's prep. And holding yeah. the knife in my hand and like, I, I, I'm excited about it. I still watch cooking shows. I torment my kids. Like, I, I still love it, yeah. uh, but I still get nervous. When I, I'm very nervous before I play a show. I don't know if I'll ever get used to that, but I think it's a good thing. When you, I'm curious, you're saying you're nervous about the prep. The prep to Not me, nervous. I look no. forward to it. But, but when I'm showing up to a gig, uh, like if I'm doing like an on-site catering thing. Right. I have, okay, I have like nightmares where I don't know. That was well, another question. Do you have work, work nightmares? Yes. The, yeah. un, the unknown. Yeah. But it's, it's so funny because I remember like I'm just an anxious person. So I'm always thinking of like everything that could go wrong. But I remember my friend who's also a photographer is like, we're not saving anyone's lives here. Like, what's the worst uh, thing that could happen that you couldn't come back from, you know? That may be but, true, but nah. I know, but it doesn't yeah. feel like that when you're in it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I just, I was very fortunate enough to just shoot um, press photos for Mets, who I love. I was very yes. honored to be asked and like, I know Mets enough and whatever, but the whole time I like, before the shoot, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. My partner's just like, what are you <laughs> working yourself up about? Like, you know, in a very nice, loving way. He's like, you yeah. know what you're doing. It but means like, you give a shit. I mean, yeah. I, I, when I realized I loved, I truly loved food is when I started having bad dreams about things going wrong. And I was like, because there were jobs and, and, and vocations I had chosen and I never dreamt about them. And I realized, oh, it's because I don't care. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think if you lose yeah. that, then you're just like so passive at it. You're like, I know what I'm doing. It doesn't matter. But I think feeling that sort of thing in your gut, I think mm -hmm. means you care. If you could have gone back and been a fly on the wall during a music video shoot or a film, who would you have, what moments would you have loved to have captured or artists or actors on a particular film that has oh. marked you? Um, I mean, like literally anything with Bowie. Yeah. anything um but maybe like ziggy stardust era i'm have you are you familiar with mick rock mm -hmm. the photographer he has a documentary i forget what it's called right now but it's shows a lot of 
like early footage of things that he captured with Bowie when Bowie was just up and coming and he kind of says that he was kind of doing the same thing in London where all these bands were coming up and he was kind of going around trying to shoot everyone but no one would really touch Bowie because he was too weird like people were just like oh, he would have been out there man yeah then. like yeah. he didn't really people didn't really understand Bowie and what he was doing so Mick was like I want that and all these pictures are like the really iconic ones you've seen where he's sort of drawing the silver circle and the mirror on his forehead and all those things and I just think like can you imagine being around for some of those first shows for like literally any of that? I would say. Do you know what I was thinking about today in the shower? Yeah. Tell me. <laughs> um, I keep hearing stories about Bowie's almost prophetic ability to see what was coming next. Oh my gosh. Well, that whole quote he had, that whole video he has about the internet yeah. and how we do not, yeah. like at the time it wasn't even a thing. And he's like, I don't think anyone understands how powerful and dangerous this thing is. And now here we are, yep. like all this time later, I'm like, that's exactly what he said it would be. He And his re constant reinvention and his, uh, he was relevant the whole time. Yeah. And he shepherded and invested in the next thing. Yeah. And I realized I'm like, he was more than an artist, a trendsetter. He was the headmaster. If, if rock and roll and music was a high school, he was the principal. Yeah. He managed all the departments and saw it all happening. And he was at every graduation ceremony. And grade, the graduating class was just as important as the first ones coming in because he knew where the first ones were going to end up in four years. He was like the uh, Dumbledore. Yeah. He, for me, anyway, that was yeah. my analogy. He, he sat at the top of all the comings and goings, it seemed like. He just knew. I mean, yeah, I wonder if it's sort of like something about not being afraid to just be yourself and Mm -hmm. try on different hats I mean okay I put the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust on my desert album okay desert island album that song five years always makes me like cry I don't know why but yeah if you're you're right that he did have that sort of ability to and he just didn't seem maybe he was you know but he didn't seem afraid to just like go out there and do it and try on all these different hats and is that enough? I mean it's one thing to, to to write a song and decide to let just even your mom hear it it's one thing to go to a club and play a show, but to do that and be Bowie on top of that, like the amount of courage or a lack of caring about what people think to be able to not only do all those things, but also to be this like curio that takes a whole other yeah. type of person. That's wild. I mean, thank God for him, though. Like, yeah, yeah. Look at all the things we have now. Absolutely. Probably as a result of his influence, you know? And How did the guy, how did Ziggy Stardust 30 years later end up being in a video with Trent Reznor and knowing about, like, come on. Yeah. As we wind down here, when I think of Toronto, there's certain people that I remember from Toronto. You are one of them. Um, and I think it's a testament to the power of a coffee shop, the people you get to know. Dark Horse Espresso was a very serious landmark in my life, a substantial dent. And uh, there are still people I know today. Here we are 11 years later, back in Toronto. Who, who would have thought? You sent me a random photo of my avocado toast at my restaurant one time. You were there. <laughs> Sans feta. Um, uh, but it's just, 
it's a time of my life that's incredible. I, so you're very Toronto to me. What is Toronto to you? What is the city? Wow. I really, um, I don't really know how to put that in words, but I attribute so much to Toronto in just um, becoming who I am, mm. which... Yeah, amen. Yeah, sounds kind of funny, but I mean, I moved here from Vancouver. I moved to Toronto not knowing a soul. I went to school here for four years. I kind of, I mean, I lived right at Young and Dundas, so I really didn't love Toronto for the first couple of years. Mm -hmm. But um, when I kind of spread my wings a little bit and started meeting people and getting more into the music scene and photographing people, I mean, I have met some of the most incredible people in my life in this city that will be like in my life forever and wow. have made such a um, strong mark on me and that I still know and work with to this day. And so Toronto to me is sort of like an amalgamation of all those things. It's like who I've become, so many people that I love, um, my career, my passion. It's just, yeah, it's it's done so much for me. And I feel like, you know, when you're like growing up in Vancouver, I was always like, I lived with my mom there. I was very connected to obviously my family and they sort of facilitated everything in my life. And then when you move to a new city by yourself and you have to figure everything yeah. out on your own and you're kind of like, I did that by myself. Yeah. I just attribute a lot of that to the city and what it is and how there's this funny rivalry between Vancouver and Toronto, I feel. And so people always put these stigmas on each of the cities from different lenses. And I remember people always being like, Toronto is really cold and unfriendly. And I've found it to be such the opposite. the opposite. I feel like it's such a really beautiful and communal place where people are working really hard to... Um, achieve dreams and support one another. I mean, gosh, look at the neighborhood that you and I met in now. So many people that we know yeah. um, are running those areas with their crazy businesses. And, you know, I kind of always laugh thinking about like, yeah. Yeah. Lots of our friends have taken over Ossington yeah. and <laughs> Queen West and have their restaurants and their stores and whatever. And before we were all just like these little skids running around yeah. that area, going to shows. And now people have really like made their mark. And I, I love that. Yeah. We were there together at that snapshot of time in Toronto. That's yeah. just so cool. Um, Hamilton, Toronto was a, a time of becoming for me. Yeah. And I would say the same for you. I might actually name this episode Becoming. Um, geography change is miracle working. I, that, I was only here for three years and it changed me. And I found out I was good at things I didn't know I was good at. Yeah. And it rounded me out. I met my wife then. Um, and it turned into a restaurant for me. Crazy. Yeah. So we were there for that at the same time. Yeah. Um, I'm learning how to end conversations when I know that we've had a good conversation. I think we're at we're an hour and 41 minutes and I'm, there's more we could say, there's more we could do. And I, I, I hate the fact that it might be another 10 years before I see you again. No <laughs> but, way. We're going to go see Limb Lifter. I mean it. I want to go. Um, maybe we could swap numbers and, and, and move from email to uh, being phone friends. But um, thank you so much for saying yes two years ago and saying yes every time I checked in. And for ultimately, I left it alone. And, and you reached out and knocked on my door and said, I'm ready. And that I won't forget that. 
that was you and Kevin Drew from Broken Social Scene were the longest vetting. <laughs> um, Kevin was a wild card. I'm like, I, I don't know when that'll ever happen, but I knew with with you, it was worth waiting because I knew one day it probably would. And you said yes when you were ready, and I I won't forget that. And uh, you've been so generous uh, with your time, and you have a great great story. And I love seeing uh, what you do. It's really really cool. Um, so thank you for coming today. The power of saying yes. Yeah. Yeah. The power of asking. Yes. Yes. One hundred percent. Let's end. Let's end it this way. There's a lot of artists. There's a lot of photographers that are uh, coming up. A lot of them are undercutting prices for a lot of photographers. There's a whole whole thing going on with with weekend warriors that are calling themselves photographers that maybe shouldn't be. But there are real ones too that want to do what you are doing right now. Um, it matters to hear from people that have walked a long road. What advice do you have for someone who wants to make a life out of capturing people? You can probably cut out my really long pause. I don't know. It feels I, I, like a great responsibility to... <laughs> there's a power in the good pause. Um, uh, maybe I will say right now I'm working on the power of listening. Uh, it's not something I always feel like I'm very good at, actually. And I feel like our job kind of requires um, listening, but not only in a very literal sense, but just... Um, Observing and listening and trying to understand others. And um, yeah, I think if you can create a relationship with people where you can um, listen to them in lots of ways and um, cultivate these meaningful relationships with them because they feel seen and heard by you, I mm. think that is sort of the key to um, existing in that space. Being seen and heard. I love that. Yes, I agree. Very good. How do we find you on socials and stuff like that? Oh, gosh. Here's the part where I'm hunting. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I am. I just go under my name, at Vanessa Hines, H-E-I-N-S. Like the ketchup, but with an S. Perfect condiment. Um, do you even, do, do regular lay people have access to you to get work done, or do you only do celebrity? No, I I shoot everyone. Okay. I actually, I, that was, I, was being, I was being facetious, but I was like, I don't even know if... <laughs> You do that. Okay, that's good to know. Vanessa Hines, thank you so much for your time here. And um, let's go see Limb Lifter together. Yeah, man. I'm going to force my wife to come and see a great band. I haven't seen a show. You know what? For all the things that we've done together, we've never seen a concert together. What? Oh. No. All right, well, maybe that's the one. Tinfoil, Cordova. Yes. Screwed yes, it up. Cordova. It was actually screwed it up. That was the one that, that got me. God, I love that album. It's perfect. Is it your favorite album by them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah that one, same. for sure. And Age of Electric, Make a Pest a Pet, Ryan Dahl, Kurt Dahl, also in that band. Incredible and yeah, band. their style, by the way, was just so cool. Yeah, still holds up. All right. See ya. See ya, Limb Lifter. See ya, Limb Lifter. We'll grab, we'll grab a street dog, but you, you probably don't eat meat, right? Are you vegan? Well, they have veggie dogs. Okay, true. <laughs> okay, now I'm just, now I'm rambling. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. We will see you for episode 75. And uh, Vanessa, thank you so much for your time and generosity, guys. We'll see you on the other side. Talk soon. <laughs>